This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, a little help for the FAA's Before You Fly app. And get a two-for-one during the AOPA Flying in Frederick, Maryland. Also, GPS jamming becoming more widespread across the country. Find out what's new from the helicopter show in Atlanta. All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, the 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 1324. Turn right, contact. Back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guests this week, a really cool couple, Lincoln Benedict and Jess Marion. They're out of Maine, and managing editor Sarah Diener caught up with them. And they are some outgoing, outdoorsy people, and they use a really cool Cessna 172 to get to the backcountry. We're going to hear all about it. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll hear from them a little bit later, but uh, let's get right to the headlines. So, David, a little help. The FAA has struggled a little bit uh, with this drone app. Before you fly, you've used this, um, and now they're, they're going to get a hand in making it a little bit better. Thank goodness they're going to get a, a hand in making it better, Ian. It is, was not a very good app to begin with. The Before You Fly app was introduced basically to help people, you know, get their drone businesses off the ground and know where you can and can't fly. But I'll be honest with you, I plugged in my uh, my townhouse over here mm-hmm. at uh, Urbana, and I mean, the only thing it told me was that there were three local airports nearby. They're all grass strips. Actually, two are grass strips, one's paid. But it didn't give me phone numbers or anything else like that. I actually had to use my regular aviation app, my, my normal electronic flight bag, to figure out who to call and let them know when I was learning how to fly a drone. Hmm. It sounds like you're better off than some folks. If you look in the, uh, I was looking in the Android app store, it's incredible. I, I don't know if I've ever seen an app get so low of reviews. It's like a 1.7 and half the people said, even though I allow GPS and everything else, there is no geolocation. It just sits there and spins or it tells me I'm close to an airport and I'm not and so it sounds like they got all kinds of problems. Well, but they're going to get some uh, Major League help, though, Ian, and that's kind of the cool thing. Helps right around the corner from Kitty Hawk, and these are the folks who are basically enterprise solution people, 
And um, I think that's going to really help help boost awareness for drone pilots. Yeah, yeah, it is pretty neat. I mean, these folks, um, they're from the tech world. They know what they're doing here. Not necessarily in the same space as like a, a DJI or a prosumer drone. Like you said, they're, they're doing more large-scale stuff. But it seems like it's a good fit for them because they're saying it's like, you know, they want a community of uh, legitimate pilots who know what they're doing and, and follow the rules. And so it's in their best interest to help. And it looks like um, like uh, one of their founders, Joshua Ziering, who talked to uh, Jim Moore, basically acknowledged that how poor the Before You Fly app was. And I guess they took it as a challenge. That's why they wanted to, to make it better. <laughs> so I'm more power to them. I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Absolutely. That's right. Hey, we've got something for you to do this summer. I know you're always looking for places to fly. So come May, it's AOPA's 80th anniversary, and uh, we're celebrating with another event in Maryland in May. So that's May 10th and 11th, the AOPA 80th anniversary here at our home airfield at Frederick Municipal Airport. And simultaneously, Joint Base Andrews is having their annual show too. So there is going to be a ton of aviation going on here in the Washington, D.C. area, May 10th and 11th. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Uh, you know, the um, AOPA flying, if you've been to one of these before, consider coming to Frederick as well because this one's going to be a little bit special. We've got, uh, obviously, it's the anniversary, so we've got some fun stuff planned for that. The D-Day Squadron, which is those uh, collection of DC-3s and C-47s that are flying over for the uh, the D-Day anniversary uh, over to uh, England and France, they're going to be, a lot of those DC-3s and C-47s are going to be at the, uh, at the fly-in. And then both the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds are going to be at Andrews. Speaking of two-for-ones, if you can get the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds in, in one weekend, uh, that, that to me, that's like, score, I'm winning. You know? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so head over to AOPA's website, check it out, the Frederick Fly-In. Um, you can Google it. You don't have to reserve early, but we like you to because it tells us how many folks are coming. So uh, definitely let us know you're coming and uh, plan on flying in or, or driving in for that and head over to Andrews as well. And check out some of the sites in Washington, D.C. We're only about 35 miles north of D.C. There's plenty of stuff to do. And also, I just want to you know, give a shout-out to, uh, to our folks. Don't forget, there's going to be educational seminars as well. We'll have the normal Pilot Town Hall with Mark Baker. And there's just a ton of cool stuff. We're going to have a whole different Friday night planned. And some of the entertainment is going to include a stall, S-T-O-L, invitational. I cannot wait for that. Yeah, right on. That is going to be very cool. So make sure you check that out. Now, if you go there, you're likely going to fly there with GPS. Hopefully, we're not going to face the same problem some folks uh, around the country are facing recently, and we're trying to bring some more awareness to this. GPS jamming, uh, testing, basically, the DOD is doing is, is increasing. Ian, that's a, such a great transition, man. Way to go. Uh, so, yeah, the, um, the GPS jamming that the folks in the southeast experienced uh, earlier in February has actually spread a little bit around the rest of the country. What's unnerving about it is that this is at the same time that, that folks are really scrambling to uh, equip their aircraft with ADSB. So as we're relying more on ADSB, we're also getting some of this military testing and jamming uh, on the GPS. And there's that one cool phrase that just entered our vocabulary, and I'm going to let you let our podcast listeners know what it is, Ian. Yeah, David, this is a new one to me. Stop buzzer. So if you ever wanted to be on a game show, now's your time. Yeah, you get into trouble. You can <laughs> call out to ATC. It's like, stop buzzer. I like it. And that's something that I had never heard of before we started writing uh, some stories about this to increase awareness. But really, that's a key thing to know. And what it allows you to do is you, you use that phrase when you're talking to air traffic control. And so that 
will help you relay the message to them that you're having like a GPS navigation emergency, basically. And it will and it'll help them by interrupting that testing. So that's a key thing. So uh, I believe that, that saying that phrase alerts the authorities that you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, it's really uh, it's fascinating. Definitely one to know about. For what it's worth on this, AOPA is, is gone to bat for the community. We've tried to work with the FAA and DOD and bring up the severity of this issue. So far, we're feeling like the FAA is not really on board with us, um, so we're going to keep pushing that. But important to know, to check notums and make sure that uh, if you're going through an area, you, you might have signal degradation. People have been cleared for approaches and had signal problems, right. so um, definitely something to keep an eye out for. Definitely, and always monitor 121.5 because you can use that stop buzzer phrase over that frequency as well. So that's hmm. a key a key tool to have in your tool bit. Yeah, great point, great point. Hey, David, we talked about eVTOL a bit on the show, and uh, it's it's come up again this past week primarily because it's the biggest news to come out of HAI, and that is the, the talk and the display of eVTOL and, and where that industry is going. That's right. At the Helicopter Association's International Heli Expo in Atlanta, that was March 4th to 7th, and a couple of things came out of that, and I thought one of the more interesting discussions that I saw was uh, the Vertical Flight Society's discussion, and they were talking about the hype cycle of any kind of a new product. This is kind of new information to me, but it made total sense. Did you get a chance to look at that? Yeah, I, that was pretty pretty fascinating, and I, I've heard uh, Mike Hirschberg, he's the director of Vertical Flight, talk before at HAI, and he's super smart guy, and this is kind of the the engineering arm um, or the R&D test arm of, uh, of helicopters. And so it's really fascinating to hear them talk about kind of new tech and, and the future of uh, vertical flight. Obviously, a lot of that being an eVTOL. And I thought he had a, based on the, the reports that I read, just a really great down-to-earth take on, on what it's going to take, really, to get us to that next step. Yeah, and so part of the discussion was basically to kind of get folks' expectations in line. Mm -hmm. Um, The first thing was that he says that the industry is at the peak of inflated expectations right now and will soon slide to a trough of disillusionment on a kind of a roller coaster ride (laughs) with the hang-up being the power-to-weight ratio. And that's the main thing, you know, the battery hurdle. That's the biggest problem that we're looking at right now with all this. Yeah, yeah. The quote, he said it was great. He goes, he said, you know, batteries suck. And in general, (laughs) um, that's true right now. He laid out, I thought, just really succinctly what really all of us have been talking about. What he sees are five miracles, he calls them, that need to happen for eVTOL to be successful. So it's going to be basically new FAA regs, engineering infrastructure like Skyports and air traffic management software. We've talked about that one. Mm -hmm. Finding and training sufficient pilots because... I think the consensus, although not everybody agrees with this, I think the consensus is that it's going to go from manned to unmanned. Right. They're going to need to improve battery technology and then um, really set a, a, a realistic timeline. I agree. And you know, and the the bigger hang up to me in my mind to me is the infrastructure. You know, yes, we have the technical hang up with weight and power. But, I mean, as I look around, and there are a lot of different ways to, to get, you know, electronic vertical flight in action. But as I look around, I see power lines. I see cities that aren't, that aren't maximized for this type of aviation. And I see a lot of hindrances that, are, that are basically could be unsafe. Yeah, absolutely. So it's nice to see, I think, both a kind of mix of, like, you've got Bell, which is displaying this uh, eVTOL mock-up, which just looks just so cool. With just some of the reality. Yeah, the Nexus. That's wild. Yeah, it is very cool. With with the reality of 
the engineering and what it's going to take for it. So um, sounds like a, a great show and a, and a good discussion there. Yeah, and before we leave HAI, let's uh, speaking of cool things, there was a birthday to celebrate over there with the Robinson R22. Ian, that's a helicopter that's probably near and dear to your heart. Yeah, absolutely. 40 years, uh, which is just amazing. And you think about where the industry has come in 40 years, and so much of it, honestly, due solely to the R-22 and, and how accessible it made helicopter flying for so many people, myself included. And in fact, we've got a, a podcast coming up with Tim Tucker, who's the uh, chief CFI of Robinson and who bought, I think it was serial number two, maybe two or three, basically the first production helicopter. Fantastic. Yeah. So it's just a phenomenal little machine and, and feel very fortunate to have experienced it. And uh, I think, you know, just because it's 40 years old doesn't mean it's it's you know going away. I think they're they're going to be around for at least 40 more years, just like the 172 and 152 and all the others. Oh yeah, that's a good point. And I've I have a couple of hours in one as a, a helicopter student, but man, I don't know if I ever told you this. I spent about a week in one in South Georgia covering some floods, hmm. and um, I was fine. That was fine. I enjoyed it. I liked the view and everything. That was before I was a private pilot, Ian. But it really, you know, I got the experience of being in a helicopter and I really enjoyed it. I, I didn't know about some of the challenges that come about when you fly an R-22, which I do now. Yeah. But still, nonetheless, that was an economical way to do that particular job. And they did a great job with traffic reporting. And R-22 is, is, like we said, is fantastic for, for, you know, flight instruction as well. Yeah. That's very cool. Very cool to see them have so much success and uh, looking at the future. And I, actually, you know, one thing we should mention is uh, just a bit of news from Robinson. They always have a really nice press conference and talk about deliveries and give an update on Frank and how he's doing. But they said that they're working on a diesel R44, which should be pretty interesting. That would be good. And, you know, they have the turbine powered R66 with mm-hmm. 1 million hours flown. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Hey, the top story is something we didn't tease, but that's super important. Um, probably the biggest news of the week, maybe even of the month. Uh, Boeing has bought ForeFlight. Yeah, I was just looking at my new uh, Boeing app that I have on my phone. <laughs> it used to be called ForeFlight. We're just teasing. It's still called ForeFlight. And Tyson Ways had a really good interview with uh, with our own Tom Haynes, and Tyson pledged that they would not stray from their GA roots. And that, to me, was uh, was music to my ears, and I was really glad to hear about that. Yeah. So I think... Lots of, um, I'll call it mixed reactions from this. To be 100% honest, Jeppesen has not had the best track record in GA in terms of customer service and pricing. They've worked really hard the past couple of years to turn that around, and I think they're doing a good job with that, but they've got a little ways to go. So some people are a little afraid that um, with Boeing owning ForeFlight now, it's going to mean increased prices, uh, lack of GA development. One question that came about was, are there going to be NOS charts in it? Well, FAA charts in it anymore, or are we going to have to be forced to use JEP charts. And, and um, Tyson's saying, no, that's not the case. And, and Reggie from JEP. So we, you know, we hope they, they continue to focus on those GA routes. And, and Tyson, I think is, uh, he's got a really good handle on that. That's where he comes from. And, and Jason and the guys at ForeFlight. So I'm hopeful for the future there. And also don't forget that Tyson was one of our Hangar Talk podcast guests, wasn't he, Ian? Yeah, Tyson and Jason. Yep. They've got a great story about the founding there and, and been at it for 10 years. Really with the development, they exploded with the development of the iPad. So they've been at the iPad from the beginning. And this was a natural fit, I think. You know, you see Jepson and ForeFlight partnering the past couple of years. And it's just going to be fascinating, I think, to see where they go in terms of both the commercial development 
for airlines and and GA and and what uh, what kind of resources it gives for flight to be able to move forward. Yeah, I'm hoping that it's a symbiotic relationship that helps everybody involved. I will be honest and let folks know that I am a ForeFlight user, and mm-hmm. I have been for a pretty good while. I like the app. I think it's pretty good. Now, I haven't really delved much into their competition recently because I've been relatively satisfied. Although I must say it is getting what you would call heavy. Yeah. It's getting a little bit more heavy for me. I think the pricing is getting a, a little too high you know, for, for my taste anyway. And I think other pilots have squawked about that, too. Um, yeah. if, if folks want to get a little bit more of the background between Tyson Ways and Jason Miller, let me just let them know that in Episode 50 of Hangar Talk, and that's AOPA.org slash Hangar Talk, Episode 50, you had a really good interview with them in 2018 in July. Yeah, it was a good talk. Um, and I agree with you. In fact, I, I had used uh, Garmin Pilot for a long time. I, I just love the user experience that they had. And um, But I, I switched, actually, recently. I switched over to ForeFlight. I, I thought uh, ForeFlight's development was just so much better. They put so much more thought into the updates and were just more sort of cutting edge with what they were offering. So it'll be really interesting to see how that develops. Yeah, and, and similarly, I used FlyQ, another one of the EFBs that uh, has been out there for a while. I used that and switched over to ForeFlight. So I think between you and I, we've, we've had you know the top three, I would imagine. So that's a, yeah. a really interesting viewpoint. Yeah. Well, hey, let's bring on our guests. We got uh, Lincoln and Jess today, and um, they're a really cool couple flown all over New England. And the thing that I think that people are going to be really interested to hear is the way that they use their airplane, the way that they use it as kind of a a fun traveling machine and and the way that it opens up all kinds of areas that um, really driving can't do. Sarah Diener. I'm here with Lincoln Benedict and Jessica Marion. Thanks for joining us, guys. No problem. I got a chance to tag along with Lincoln and Jess last March on a trip to Sugarloaf Regional Airport in Maine. And it's a pretty cool area. There is a ski resort there. There are, I think, 80 miles of trails for skiing, biking, hiking, and they happen to connect to the airport. So if it's a good snowy day, you can strap on your skis and just go from the plane. You can read more about that in the March issue of AOPA Pilot, which is our destinations issue. What I was really impressed with about Lincoln and Jess is how the two of you have incorporated flying into your lifestyle and really made the most of it. Lincoln, you're a private pilot, right? Yep. How did you get into flying? So I actually got into flying, ironically, because of drones. I work here at L.L. Bean doing videos and uh, wanted to incorporate drones into our world. And that was back in the Section 333 days where you had to have your pilot license. So I'd always wanted to do it, so I went for it. And, uh, yeah, that's a great excuse. It. it was a great excuse. It, was, it definitely led to an addiction. <laughs> so. And about how many hours do you have now? About 300-plus-ish. All right, well, tell me about Old Mustard Sides. <laughs> Old Mustard Sides is a 1960 Cessna 172A with a Continental Flat 6 0300 engine. She's got a stole kit, well, a Horton stole kit, and an extended baggage. So it's a great adventure buddy and has seen us through many fun and interesting trips. And if you didn't deduce already, it's also mustard orange. 
right? <laughs> yes. It is a very becoming <laughs> uh, shade of mustard orange that I have been told by a high fashion authority is in vogue. It's good. Everything comes around again, right? Exactly. The 1960s are back in vogue. <laughs> so so um, you love flying. You both enjoy an active outdoor lifestyle. Um, and you've, you've seem to crack the nut of how to make that work to incorporate flying into your lifestyle in a way that I think a lot of people struggle to. Could you talk about what you love doing most with the airplane? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, with the airplane, it's it's a little bit of a, uh, it picks our destinations a little bit for us in terms of, oh, we, you know, we'd like to go somewhere or we'd like to, um, you know, do an activity, then it's like, okay, what airport does this? Like, for instance, this past summer, there's this airport in Keene Valley, uh, New York, that is the only airport that I know of around here that has a hiking trail directly from it. So I was like, okay, that was, you know, when the weather was good for a weekend, that was what we tried to do. So that's sort of the fun of it. I mean, you know, this in December, we went up to Presque Isle, Maine, and then went cross-country skiing up there. And that, you know, we wouldn't have driven four hours just to go cross-country skiing on this rather small place. Mm -hmm. But the plane was sort of a guiding principle for that. And it, you know, lets us see new things and sometimes get there faster. (laughs) But when you add up all the time, sometimes it's actually slower. But the view certainly is better. And Jess, you're not a pilot, but you're an active participant, an active right seater. Um, how How do you make these trips work for you? (laughs) <laughs> well, it's definitely been a lesson in in patience a little bit. I've learned to focus more on the day as a whole and the whole journey as an adventure rather than just the destination. Because sometimes we have really good plans of going to a place and then due to weather or other reasons, we've had to divert to other other airports and maybe choose a different adventure. So I think that actually has been a really good lesson for me because I can be a little bit goal-oriented. And and I've learned that it's not the worst thing if we don't go where we intended. We've ended up exploring some some pretty neat places and neat airports that we never would have thought of without those circumstances. So it's it's been really cool to just explore, and I really enjoy exploring and, and going to new places. So I think that's my favorite part is just getting to, to see new places. And a lot of your trips are day trips or over a weekend or, or very short, but you had a, a pretty unusual honeymoon. Uh, could you tell us about that? So it was definitely Lincoln's idea. Lincoln has had his eye on Newfoundland for a long time, and the honeymoon was a great excuse to take an extended three-week vacation from work and other life things and make it happen and go to Newfoundland. We really needed that much of a window because we weren't sure how long it would take to get there with weather and and all kinds of other circumstances. Um, We also had to leave enough time during that window to make sure that we could travel around within Newfoundland and to make things extra complicated, our means of travel within Newfoundland uh, was bicycles. (laughs) So... We flew to Newfoundland and then bicycle toured around, um, which we survived that and we're still married. So I think we're good. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you pack for three weeks in Newfoundland in a 172? Check weight and balance very carefully. <laughs> no, it was, yeah, it actually, weirdly, we more bulked out than weighted out. The nice thing about bike touring is that you're confined to what you can bring on a bicycle. So that actually was a great way to pack in terms of, 
you know, we had our panniers. Um, we didn't have front panniers. We just had rear panniers. But um, that defined how much we could take and also made small bags that were easy to load in and out of. The full-size touring bikes were not quite as easy to load in and out of the plane, but that really helped define it. You know, we had um, food and water and stoves and stuff like that. So pretty much anywhere we're, we landed, you know, we could make a home of, which is sort of what we did the first um, two nights. We stayed in this incredible place on the southern coast of Newfoundland. And then we sort of went to more developed places and bike toured around and were able to get more supplies on bikes. But, you know, it definitely refined what we had and, and made us think more about what, what we absolutely needed. We definitely planned out the packing for that one and couple weeks before started really organizing piles of our things and thinking really consciously about items that had multi-purpose. What could we bring? What kind of backpack could we bring that we could put on our back to bicycle with or we could trail run with or we could carry enough things to go on more of a hike? So everything was multi-purpose. What kind of clothing could we bike in and hike in and run in and sleep in? (laughs) Yeah, after two weeks, it was pretty... uh... Let's just say the customs guy who inspected us at the end, they sort of opened the door of old mustard sides and sort of said, oh, okay, uh, yeah, we're good. <laughs> they used their external sensors mostly. <laughs> they, they didn't really want to do a close internal inspection. Yeah. The, the packing of the bicycles got pretty rehearsed by the end of the trip, and I say we can do it pretty quickly now. We each have our own roles, and we can dismantle the bikes and put them in the plane in a pretty good amount of time now. Wow. So was there a particular destination during the trip that made you think, wow, this was really worth it? This was, you know, this is a great experience to go by air. Hands down, this place called Harrington Harbor. It's on the north coast of the St. Lawrence, and the only way to get there is a ferry that takes a few days to go up and down the coast. There are no roads, or you can take an airplane. Um, There's scheduled air service, but it's not that often. So we landed there. And Harrington Harbor is actually an island off of the coast. And I, ironically, I'd heard about Harrington Harbor by Foreflight, the app. In the comments section, it just said, Jeans B&B, and offered a number. So we were planning our flight down from blanc Sablon, which is sort of as far east as you can get in Quebec, down to lower in the St. Lawrence where you could cross over to the Gas Bay. And this was a perfect little spot where we could stop and um, add some fuel and make sure we were doing well. Anyway, so we, we landed there, and we, I think it's, at, yeah, Chevry is technically the airport. <laughs> but we landed there, and Harrington Harbor is an island off of the coast of there. And normally they have a ferry, but apparently the ferry was broken down, so courtesy of the Quebec government, we got a free helicopter ride out to this incredible small oh, fishing wow. island. Yeah, it was amazing. It was the coolest thing. And it's it actually has a fascinating history in terms of aviation. Um, This guy, uh, Robert Byron, who just passed away, was the pastor there for years and years. And he flew a float plane, which ranged from a Cessna 185, and I think he had a Helio courier in the later days. And he would fly around all of his parishioners and help them out with whatever and find people. And it was just amazing history. And the other fascinating thing about it, and this is, I guess, a main factoid, he is one half of the duo of Bert and I, which is classic New England humor. So we had no idea about this coming in, and we uh, discovered it along the way. And it was just this magical place that, like, you just we would never have gone to and was impossible to access otherwise. That, you know, traveling in a plane just totally opened up. That sounds great. 
That also means overwater flying, right? So uh, <laughs> what did you guys do to prepare for that? <laughs> Acquired some dry suits. Um, <laughs> well, first thing we did was had my mechanic do a once-over, do a boroscope, do some compression tests. And, you know, that's not a, a fail-safe, but it was certainly a let's do a once-over uh, and make sure there are no impending signs of problems, did a oil check, mm-hmm. made sure that we were good on that front, which is, you know, <laughs> if you're going to go on a long trip, wasn't a bit, not a bad idea anyways. And then, yeah, we got uh, dry suits. I was actually able to borrow one from a friend, and we were actually able to get one for Jess and um, life, inflatable life jackets that would not auto-inflate. So had we're wearing those over all of our <laughs> overwater crossings, which was actually more pleasant than you would think, because when you're up at 11,000 feet in a Cessna 172, you feel like you're about to break into outer space, and it's actually surprisingly cold. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we were up as high as we could go and had that. And then I had a uh, DeLorme, I guess now Garmin, in reach, and Jess mm-hmm. had a VHF radio on her, uh, literally on our person, like in the PFD. So if we had to ditch and get out, that was it. And yeah, we were talking to, um, I got a tickle because we were talking to Gander, control, which just sounded so exotic. Uh, Very exciting for a little Podunk 172 pilot like myself. (laughs) So yeah, we were in contact Mm -hmm. with them for a while and took us a while to come down once we were to Newfoundland because we were up so high. I just wanted to add the coolest part about some of the overwater flying was when we were crossing from Newfoundland to the eastern coast of Quebec, we flew over Iceberg Alley and got to fly over icebergs, which was pretty memorable. Oh, wow. And was the, the weather pretty okay for the trip? We lucked out extraordinarily on the weather. I mean, it really, it worked with us. I mean, planned all these contingencies of fuel burn and like, okay, if we have a headwind, which when you're cruising in an airplane that goes 95 knots on a good day, you know, a headwind adds a lot. So we actually had an incredible tailwind going up and totally clear blue skies. And the one place that we stayed that was very exposed, it's it's actually called Wreck House, the first airport, because of its notorious winds. And we did not experience those at all. I mean, you know, we're totally on guard going in. We check the weather. There's the only the only weather. There's no METAR. It's literally an asphalt strip in the middle of nowhere um, on the southern coast of Newfoundland. So we checked uh, <laughs> traffic cameras. That was kind of our nearest weather. And then also the different METARs around there. So anyways, yeah, the weather was incredible. We got pushed along with a lovely tailwind. And it coincided perfectly that we landed in Deer Lake, which is 50 miles away from Grossmorn, which was our big stop. So we, we biked, we left the plane in Deer Lake for a week and then biked over uh, to Grossmorn and stayed there. And we got a couple of rainy days and days that we definitely wouldn't have been flying. So that was nice. And then we were able to pick a good day to go back, which was incredible, flying over all the stuff we just hiked in and biked in um, and then flying over to Blanc Sablon, where we promptly got stuck for a few days. <laughs> that was pretty... Yeah, that was a bit of a weather hole. The weather was actually so bad that the regular scheduled ferry also was stranded b- due to high high seas. And I guess that's a regular occurrence there, too. There's lots of hotels and lots of get-rich-quick schemes about how to house all the ferry passengers that are also stuck. But <laughs> it was kind of fun because we met a number of other people who were waiting for the ferry. And every morning, they would get up and get in line to see if they could get on the next ferry. And if it was canceled, then they'd come back and wait another five hours to try to get on the next ferry. And eventually one went out. But um, it, was, it was a funny place where everyone was in a holding pattern. <laughs> it was kind of interesting, too. You know, I mean, it was a good place to learn sort of respect of 
you know, the weather, like I literally get up at five every morning and call up <laughs> the same poor soul at the uh, NAV Canada who would issue the weather briefing and tell me yet again the weather was was not conducive <laughs> to flying. But, you know, it meant we explored more with our bikes. We biked to Labrador. We can say that. We biked across the border. It was nice that it was a maritime environment in terms of there weren't, it wasn't very mountainous. So it's like, you know, when we fly home to Vermont, my the minimums are quite a bit higher. Like I have a minimum of 2,700 feet for ceiling in the place where we go in and here it's definitely, you know, there isn't that much terrain. So you can hug the coastline at a reasonable, you know, at a thousand feet, which is, you know, it's a greater risk, but it's, you're not worried about sea fit. So yeah, that was the the weather there was interesting. So we, we had a break where the ceilings were 1200 feet, 1300 feet. And I was like, okay, I, th- I think we're good to go. We were right on the edge of a front. Um, and the, the, you know, the low pressure was off to our northeast and where we wanted to go was the high pressure in the southwest. So we did. And, you know, the, the, the risk is greater when you're low, but it was just this incredible, amazing flight, you know, seeing these remote settlements of, you know, one or two families or this guy out in a fishing boat we went right over another fishing trawler. And it was, it was, that was the most memorable flight for, for me. I mean, it was just spectacularly beautiful. Yeah, very, very little civilization. It, it was a little bit hairy at some points, but it was just incredibly beautiful. The landscape had no trees. It's all, it looks like tundra almost, just the, the type of climate that was there, even though it's not that far north. Um, it was all green and yellow colored lichen landscapes and there were whales and the other neat thing about flying that low is you can really see the whales and there are a lot in that area so whale watching by plane sounds beautiful yeah for the most part i mean we're incredibly lucky on the weather like we we actually literally had tailwinds most of the time which was we were very thankful for especially we're we're very thankful for i mean we had plenty of fuel but at (laughs) <laughs> the peak fuel price was 10 bucks a gallon in blanc Sablon for 100 low lead. So we're also thankful that we weren't burning as much. So flying VFR in a 172, there are a lot of weather decisions that go into it. And, and Jess, you made the observation that it's actually a lot like avalanche assessment. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think they're similar in some ways in that you're assessing the risk to benefit ratio. Um, and with avalanches... Every day that you choose to go out when there's an avalanche danger, you, you have to choose your route carefully. So based on what are the dangers of today, what is the route that we're willing to take, what are our outs, and it's, it's all these mental calculations about risk and trying to make sure you're not getting into these mental traps. And I think that's where flying is really similar. You do your checklist, just like with avoiding avalanches, you do these checklists to make sure you're not making hasty mistakes, you weigh all the information you have, the weather, and then you choose a route that it can't be risk-free, but you have to choose the least amount of risk for for the reward that you want. And that's where I think they're also similar. With, with avalanches, the goal is to have a fun day of skiing, and so it's easy to get into all these traps. Well, that looks better, or these people these people did that before us, or these guys know more than I do. Um, and that's where flying is similar. I consider Lincoln the expert out of the two of us, so I often have to defer to his judgment, but I, I have to not always let myself do that. I have to make sure that I read the weather and look at the evidence also and make sure that we're making a, a joint plan where we can and making sure, okay, do we do we have to get here or do we want to get here? And 
those are not the same thing. Yeah, we've definitely turned around. I mean, literally on the pavement, like been like, you know, it's like, okay, not going to work. I'd say the one, yeah, the thing about avalanches too that's interesting, and, and actually that I like about flying so much more is like the the terrifying thing, so we're both big backcountry skiers, the terrifying thing about avalanches is you can be 99 one hundredths of the way to causing an absolutely incredible avalanche that will wreak havoc, but you don't, you know, you didn't go that last hundredth, so you have no idea, you just walked right over it, and you know, you, you you just go in your merry way and think, oh, that was a good day of skiing. Like, little did you know how close to death you came. Right. There's only positive feedback. You don't get that right. negative feedback. As they feel like flying, you def. I mean, you know, you get into the, you know, you push the limits and then you get low. I mean, as a VFR pilot, you know, the thing is, okay, you get more confident. You know, I'm, I, I personally am right in the sweet spot of like 200 to 300 hours where you're starting to feel really good and really confident. And you have to remind yourself that, you know, you want that extra margin of safety, but at least you do see, you say, okay, wait a minute, that was not the margin of safety I wanted with that ceiling level. But at least you can see that. I guess the closest analogy is sort of like an engine out. You know, if you, you know, you do all your homework and you do all your things, but you're relying on hundreds of little metal things working perfectly in symphony together. And, you know, sometimes your number is just up. So, you know, that's the closest thing to avalanches, but I feel like it's actually a lot more and, and also, like, when you can glide in, you know, you still have control. Okay, if you have an engine out, you have options. I mean, <laughs> when you're in an avalanche, you can try and swim, but, you know, unless you have an airbag or some crazy, you, there's not much you can really do after that. So, But it's, it's an interesting thing because, I mean, they are both inherently risky things. I mean, flying a single-engine piston aircraft is not the safest thing, and backcountry skiing is not the safest thing either. But I, I guess that's the way you look at it at the end of the day is, like, I'm doing this for fun. Like, this is supposed to be fun. <laughs> like, Yeah, at the end of the day, they're, you're doing both of them for fun. And, and both of them, you try to make it, you try to make the decision making as mechanical as possible. You try to take the emotion out of the decision making and make it as checklist-like as possible so that the emotion is in the good time had at the end, but not in the decision making. And having a lot of backup plans. Yes. yep well as we all know flying isn't cheap uh, but you seem to make it work how do you fly on a budget well I would say the number one thing is I feel incredibly lucky like to have an awesome mechanic I mean like Scott is our mechanic and he is very reasonable we pay what he charges we don't mind that but having somebody who we trust um, who will look at the plane and correct what's wrong, you know, and developing that relationship of, of trust. And, you know, I, I help out with the annual as much as I can and <laughs> try not to get in the way. But, you know, that that is a huge, huge thing. I, and, you know, there's also luck, you know, we haven't, you know, I'd, every oil change, we send that engine al- analysis. And, you know, if there's a little bit of bits of metal and it's an engine overall, that's, you know, there you go. So I think we've also lucked out with the the plane has been pretty trouble-free as planes go. There's also a lot of penny pinching in terms of fuel involved. <laughs> so this plane can take... It has an STC, a MoGas STC. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's the technical. <laughs> so Lincoln finds out where gas stations exist that non-ethanol fuel, non-ethanol gas. 
And whenever I go near any of these said airports, he sends me with four gas cans and I fill up on non-ethanol gas. So my car... I do this too. Yeah, Lincoln does also. <laughs> I, we're both often in New Hampshire for skiing and other, other things. Um, so I just came back from New Hampshire yesterday. And sure enough, despite a little blizzard over there, I filled up four gas cans worth of... I didn't say you had to. <laughs> <laughs> so... Teamwork for a little bit of a little bit of cost savings, I guess, adds up a, a lot over a year. So, yeah, and that's also, I mean, you know, it's it's how you maintain it, how you you try and do that. I mean, for instance, like the auto gas thing is funny, but the other reasoning behind it, honestly, is that we've had you know O three hundreds are notorious for valve issues, you know, caused by the lots of lead and hundred low lead. So if you can get non ethanol fuel, that means you're reducing the risk of lead fouling. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, trying to be as productive as a weekend. You know, I change my oil every 25 hours, even though I have a filter and like, you know, put on a new filter all the time and, and just try and be pro as proactive as we can. And, you know, you know, and come annual time, you know, fine, that's whatever it takes. But, you know, on the on the grand scheme of things, I, I think, it, you know, it, it is a financial decision of where your priorities are. I mean, it it's not cheap, you know, and it's, it's not one of those things where I, I'm not going to tell Scott to skimp on this like it's like no i you know <laughs> if it needs something uh yeah we should do it but yeah no if I, you know financially it's i like to call it the smartest dumb decision i've ever made <laughs> you know it's 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 been a really cool way to open up a world and and do different things but it you know it's meant that you know we don't go on a ski vacation we don't do these other well we we do go on a ski vacation but it's a 12 hour driving ski vacation so yeah, no, it's it's shuffling your priorities and making it happen. But you know, old O three hundred Cessna one seventy twos are a really good bargain. I mean, you know, you, you really can't find more of a plane out there for less. I mean, they're just an incredible variety of things. You know, it's it's not amazing at one thing, but it's really good at a lot of different things. And it was reasonably inexpensive to purchase, and we, you know, had a thorough pre buy, and it. it has served us well since then. So you hear a lot of stories about people who go through training and they get their certificate and then they're not really sure what comes next. Do you have any advice to people who are wondering, what can I do with my airplane? I mean, you know, it's, it, everybody has a different reason for getting their, their certificate. Like it's, it's a challenge. It's a, it's a dream. I mean, you know, I was drawing pictures of Piper Cubs in fifth grade. Like, you know, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that didn't stop. But, like, it's uh, to me the greatest thing was j- the ability to explore. I mean, it just, I don't know, in this day and age where sort of everything is known, the ability to go to places that you don't know, to stop by this little podunk airport, this little grass field, this, this little random place is just so fun. I mean, and we're, we're lucky to live in, I mean, Maine is a spectacular place to fly. I mean, you've got so many different options to go to. I mean, you've got places to go around there. And it's, <laughs> to cut to your point of, like, the advice to somebody wanting to get a certificate, it's like, what can you do with it? Where can you go with it? And, you know, that's a, you know, sometimes we'll we'll literally fly and just take a run. I mean, we'll go to an airport and just run. So it's like, you know, you don't have to have an extended baggage kit and all that. Like, you could have a Lance Air, <laughs> go, you know, go for a, a run anywhere you wanted to. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like make it fun, make it something that's enjoyable. But like, just I mean, just said before, like you can't have to be there. 
you, you can't need to be there. You, you, you know, it's, it's an option. Um, but that also sometimes weirdly means discovering the most wonderful things. Well, I, I think there, it's important to remember there's also different levels of commitment to flying. And when Lincoln first got his license, um, he didn't own a plane, but flew. Um, he was part of the Bald Eagles Flying Club, and they have shared planes. So that was a relatively cost-effective way to get your feet wet, so to speak, and have access to a plane and fly around and do a lot of local trips and be part of a community that could recommend um, other airports to fly to. And then from there, Lincoln decided that he was really interested in doing some of these more long distance explorations. And that was part of the motivation to um, purchase a plane. But so there's just different levels of commitment for people that want to fly, but maybe aren't ready to own a plane. And then there are a lot of other things you can do. There are flying shows. There are um, like safety seminars you could fly to. Lincoln has been to cookouts and ice runways. And there's all different things that you can fly to. It just depends what you're interested in. I think she put it better than, <laughs> than I did. <laughs> and some people just like flying around. So there are plenty of evenings when Lincoln and I will just go up for a 20-minute flight around Casco Bay because it's pretty and Lincoln just really wants to fly. So whatever people are interested in. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add? I don't think so. Thanks to Jess for <laughs> doing this. I mean, it's I have so much respect for her for flying along. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a risky, you know, can be scary. We've had some scary moments and I have a lot of respect for her for you know, going on this adventure because it's so much better to do this together. Well, thanks so much. Uh, it's great to hear about all the adventures you've had together, and um, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, David, I just think it's so cool the way they put skis in the airplane like that and uh, do with their cross-country skiing and mountaineering and all that kind of stuff. It's really neat. I agree, and uh, I wish I lived up there near Maine and Sugarloaf Regional Airport to partake of some of that cross-country skiing. It sounds beautiful. I really like their story about old mustard sides, their airplane, that Cessna 172. <laughs> that's a go-place airplane. Yeah, very cool. Hey, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk. And we're on iTunes and at the Sporties Takeoff app. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly. <laughs>